You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Episode 1. Firsts. Greetings, and welcome to the first episode of You Don't Know Flack, appropriately titled Firsts. In today's episode, I'll be talking about some of my own personal firsts as we get to know each other during this first episode. As I already mentioned, my name is Rob O'Hara, but online I go by Jack Flack or simply Flack. Offline, I'm a married father of two who works for a Fortune 500 aerospace company, spending my days in the basement of a federal building surrounded by computers. Online, I'm Jack Flack, writer, gamer, forum moderator, and more. My hobbies include writing, computers, video games, arcade games, which, not coincidentally, are all topics I'm going to be talking about on this podcast. For those of you who have read my book, Commodore, some of these stories may seem familiar, but I hope to make them fresh and interesting through this new medium. So back to the topic of our first episode, which is firsts. Today I'm going to talk about three firsts in my life, my first video game, my first computer, and my first arcade game. I'll be starting chronologically with my first video game, which was Pong. I was born in 1973, just a few months after the coin-op version of Pong was first released. In the mid-1970s, Pong was released in the form of home systems, and by the mid to late 1970s, the market was flooded with cheap Pong clones. It was one of these clones, the Volley 6, made by Roberts, that my dad brought home in the fall of 1977. Now, as a little kid, my favorite part of Thanksgiving every year was watching the Thanksgiving Day Parade. My favorite part wasn't the floats or the balloons or anything like that. My favorite part of the parade was the very end when Santa Claus came. Because when Santa Claus came, that officially began the Christmas season. So in the fall of 1977, I was really looking forward to watching this parade, but instead we got a Pong system, and I was outvoted by all of our relatives who were that... who. Uh, were over having dinner that same day, and so we ended up playing Pong instead of watching the end of the parade. If you could take yourself back to this moment, Pong today seems pretty boring. I mean, as far as arcade games go, you have two people each controlling a little line, and you're keeping a ball from going off. I mean, it's it's basically an electronic version of ping pong or tennis or whatever. Uh, but at that time, when Pong first came home, that was the first system that allowed you to control your television. I mean, that was the first thing, you know, that was the first game that you hooked up to your television and you could actually do something interactive with your television. So if you've ever seen these Norman Rockwell type paintings or photographs of that era with, you know, an entire family gathered around the television watching, uh, you know, this exciting game of Pong, uh, now we kind of laugh at that. But at the time, that's what it was really like. I mean, you know, your your mom and your dad, everybody was gathered around the television because, it. you know, this just seemed really amazing. So anyway, that, that's how I remember the Thanksgiving of 1977. Just our family, our relatives, you know, everybody gathered around the television just watching Pong with lots of oohs and ahs and just how, you know, everybody waiting to have a turn. Like, oh, you know, 
when is it my turn to control the little line, you know? Um, like I said, now, you know, these days, you know, compared to the games that we have today, I mean, even, you know, games that we have on our cell phones are so much more advanced than, than Palm. So, uh, you know, part of it was, if you think about the basics of video games, uh, you know, the, the fundamental aspect of video game being an electronic form of competition, two people, you know, playing something against each other. And Pong is, is one of the most, you know, it's a very basic game, but it's also a basic, you know, competition. It's, you have two controllers that are identical. You have two paddles that are identical. And the goal is who can, you know, hit the ball, who defend the ball from going across their side more times than the other person. So it's a very basic game. Uh, it's a very basic form of competition. But so even though the graphics are archaic and black and white and it doesn't look very exciting, uh, the allure of Pong wasn't the graphics. The allure was that level of competition. So the Pong was my introduction uh, into video game systems. The next year, we replaced that Pong with an Odyssey 2 system, which I think we owned for almost a year before replacing that with an Atari 2600. But since neither of those systems were my first system, I'm going to be saving those topics uh, for a future podcast. So now we're going to fast forward to New Year's Eve 1979. Our next door neighbors, which were the Symers, had invited our family over for a New Year's Eve get together. We lived in a a small, close knit neighborhood where people, you know, still did those sorts of things. Now the Symers had two daughters and no sons, so uh, my sister New Year's Eve when we went over there, my sister um, spent her time playing with the little girls. That kind of left me on my own, you know. So I hung out with my dad as as he talked to Mister Symer. So while we're over there visiting, Mr. Symer decides to show us his new personal computer, which is a TRS-80 Model 1. The TRS-80 Model 1, for all intents and purposes, was the first uh, home computer. It was definitely the first one I had ever seen. I know that there were things like Altairs um, and, and other small computers, you know, that aren't really computers like what we think about, you know, home computers being today. But this looked like a, a computer, obviously... It, it wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't mistake it for a modern computer today, but it had a keyboard and it had a monitor and, and you could buy peripherals like printers and, and modems and stuff. So the, the general concept of it being a personal computer was the same as what we think of a PC being today. So that New Year's Eve, I can remember several uh, specific things that we did that night. I remember seeing a ASCII racing game, which had like the letters I's and then slants to the left and right for the road. The car was made up of, I, I believe, like a, a zero and then eights on either side of it for the tires. But but again, it wasn't about the graphics so much as it was about the competition. You didn't, you weren't, you know, the, the fact that this car was drawn with ASCII characters, that didn't really factor in whether or not the game was fun. The fun part was keeping this little car on the road with arrow keys. And it wasn't until much later that graphics began, you know, being an important uh, deciding factor of games. So I remember playing that game. I also remember uh, Mr. Simer showed us a text adventure. I don't remember which one it was, but you know, at the age of uh, uh, six years old, uh, it obviously a text adventure didn't impress me that much. But but I remember it it being, uh, you know, I remember impressions of it. But I remember my impression of it was that it it was something interesting. 
And then also Mr. Simer had the speech module for the TRS-80 Model 1, which was a exterior box like with a speaker on top. It's not unlike the one that they showed in War Games where this box plugged into the TRS-80 and you know, from after loading some sort of uh, software, you could type in words and, and the computer would speak them. I remember my dad and Mr. Simer uh, making the computer say you know, dirty words that I didn't know what they meant at the time. <laughs> but, but obviously seeing all these things, I not only made an impression on me, but it made a, a huge impression on my dad, who the next day went to Radio Shack and tried to buy a TRS-80 Model 1. And uh, this is one of the you know infamous stories among our family. The salesman actually talked him out of buying a TRS-80 Model 1, informing him that in March, the TRS-80 Model 3 was going to be released. So basically, they told him he could get on a waiting list, and he would have the first TRS-80 Model 3 delivered to Yukon, Oklahoma. And so that's what he did. He, I don't remember if he paid in advance or if he just signed up on the list. But later that March, we got a phone call from Radio Shack telling us that uh, our TRS-80 Model 3 had been delivered. So Dad and I go to Radio Shack to go pick up the computer, and the first thing we notice is that the box has been opened, and the computer has been removed. So when we start talking to the salesman, they admit that they have opened the computer because they've never seen one. They hadn't seen a Model 80. This was the first one, and so they wanted to take a look at it. Doing a bit of research, I found that the TRS-80 Model 3, which came with a monitor, a keyboard, and 8K of RAM, and no floppy drives. It only came, the base model just came with a cassette drive, was $799. Now, if you wanted a floppy drive, a floppy drive was $849 more, uh, and you could add two. There were two drive bays. So we never owned a floppy drive for the TRS-80 Model 3. Now, one thing my dad did do was upgrade the system's RAM. You could upgrade it to 48K, and so he had done that. Yeah, so the whole time we had that, we never had floppy drives. We just had the cassette tape. According to Wikipedia, the cassette drive loads programs at 500 baud. So if you've ever had the uh, pleasure of downloading programs at 300 baud, you can imagine that on this computer, loading them you know, from the cassette to the computer itself was only slightly faster than that. So programs took a really long time to load. One of my favorite old stories about the TRS-80, and one that kind of puts things into perspective, uh, was this text adventure I used to play called Haunted House. So to give you an idea of what it was like, Haunted House was a text adventure that took approximately 30 minutes to load. It was the entire front side of a cassette tape. So you would put the program in, you know, type load or whatever, and then wait 30 minutes. So once the game was loaded, you would start playing and you would go through this entire adventure. You would get halfway through the game and then the game would stop you and say, now flip over the cassette tape. So now you had to load the entire uh, second half of the program, which took another 30 minutes. And you had to do this because the computer didn't have enough RAM to hold the entire game in memory. So after loading the second half of the game, one of the first uh, things that you encountered was a floating knife. The game said something to the effect of there's a knife floating here in front of you. Uh, You can move east, west, up or down, whatever. And so no matter what you did, the game said, well, no, the knife slashes your throat, the end. Please flip the cassette tape over. So now you had to flip the tape over and reload the first half of the game back into memory, which took another 30 minutes, go through the game to get to the point where the knife was, flip the cassette tape over, load for another 30 minutes, and then try something else. So imagine, you know, you've loaded the first half for half an hour, then you load the second half, so now you're an hour into the game, and you say, go west. Nope, 
knife kills you. Please flip the tape over. So now you have to do this for another hour. You load, you know, half an hour for the front half, half an hour for the second half, you know, and this time you try to go east. Nope, the knife kills you. And so it's just this continue, you know, so you might try like one or two things every day and then you were sick of it. Ultimately, the solution ended up being get knife. If you typed get knife, the game said, okay, you have the knife in your possession. And then you were free to leave the room and go wherever else you wanted in the haunted house. But those were the type of things I went through in early gaming. If you can imagine comparing that to, you know, something on the PlayStation or, you know, any modern video game system where you think, okay, well, you know, I can try one move per hour and I'm going to, you know, how many days or weeks are somebody going to try that before they get sick of it? But, you know, back then it was a lot different. In fact, I was just thinking one of the major differences between computer owners back then and computer owners today is today people think more in terms of what can my computer do for me? But back then it was more like, what can I do with this computer? And the difference seems kind of minor, but it, it's really quite profound the way people approach computing back then. Um, you know, in the early days of computing, like for the TRS-80, nobody sat around waiting for games or applications to be released. Um, most of those you know, early programs were made by people with computers. So, you know, it was, like I said, it wasn't you sitting around saying, oh, well, if I get a computer, then I can do my checkbook. Or, you know, if I get a computer, I can do this. In the early days, it was, wow, I have this computer. I'm going to make it do this. I'm going to program it to, you know, keep track of my checkbook or whatever. So it's it's really a different, kind of almost a backwards way of thinking of the way that we uh, approach computers today. And just like uh, video games now, how games are mostly written to lowest common denominator for system hardware, uh, there aren't very many PlayStation 2 games that use the hard drive accessory, for example. It was a similar situation back then in that most computer games were written for you know whatever the system came with. Uh, in other words, most of the TRS-80 Model uh, 3 games that I found were written for 8K. They weren't written to take advantage of the extra RAM that we had added. So to give you an idea of the kinds of games that I played back then, other than things that were programmed and, you know, the one one big genre was text adventures, obviously. But when it came to animation and graphics, uh, it was pretty limited. One game that I used to play all the time, if you can even call it a game now, is Dancing Demon, uh, which is a uh, basically an animated demon that takes up the, the full screen and it's drawn with uh, it's drawn with ASCII characters. The TRS-80 Model 3 had a text mode of 32 to 64 columns by 16 lines. So, you know, this character wasn't, it wasn't this hugely detailed graphic. It was a big blocks, but, you know, I mean, it looked like a person or, or a demon. And he tap danced. And so you could pick one of uh, several different songs that were programmed into the computer. Then you could select different dance moves and link these together and then play it back and it would play a little program where you know you had this little demon tap dancing and spinning around and then it played music in the background and actually there's videos of this on YouTube and th this is what it sounds like with the demon tap dancing here so you know not real amazing uh, sound quality here for the TRC but you know it, it got the point across. So obviously the TRS-80 had definite limitations when it came to graphics and memory and sound. But a lot of the things that I learned about computers and especially programming, concepts of programming, I learned on the TRS-80. When I programmed, you know, 
even today when I write uh, batch files or VB applications or whatever, there's a certain amount of logic that goes into setting up your variables in advance and, and you know, the a logic of, you know, the, of the flow of a program where this has to happen before this has to happen. And those are things I learned on the TRS-80 and programming in basic. I programmed, um, I had programs, I had wrote a trivia program about dinosaurs that would ask you questions and keep track of your score. And I wrote simple adventure programs and things like that as a young kid that, like I said, they, they weren't very advanced programs per se, but the, the logic behind them are things that uh, are still applicable. Another one of my favorite TRS-80 stories is the time that my teacher called me a liar. This happened back, uh, I believe, in the beginning of second grade, where where we came to school and one of the for, you know on the first day the teacher had us go up in front of the class and we say you know give a little speech about what we did over the summer that sort of thing and I gave a little speech about how I spent most of the summer working on our home computer and writing programs and stuff. So I don't remember if the teacher called my parents or sent a note or somehow, but but the message got home to my parents that uh, little Robbie had a problem with about telling the truth and that I had made up these tales about, you know, actually owning a computer in our house and knowing how to program on it and stuff. And so uh, a couple of days later, my dad made an agreement with the teacher and actually brought our TRS-80 to school. So for a lot of the kids in my class, this was the first time they had... Uh, ever seen a personal computer and actually for the teacher and, and even the principal and some of the other teachers came into our class. So it was, it was that kind of an event where, you know, people had never seen a personal computer before. And, you know, and if they had, they'd never been able to, to touch one or work on one. And my dad had a, a little program that would make word searches. You could put in words and it would generate, you know, little random grids of, of letters and, and create word searches. And so, after doing a little demonstration in the class, he made a word search with every kid's name in the word search. And he also had a TRS-80 uh, printer. It's quite possibly one of the loudest peripherals ever sold. And so he printed out these word searches in our class. And uh, anyway, I always kind of enjoyed the, the idea of teachers having to eat crow. Another funny TRS-80 story that I remember is... Um, the computer was, our, our TRS-80 was prone to overheating. And so if you played games uh, for any length of time, eventually the machine would overheat. And when it overheated, the entire screen would scramble just into some, you know, random numbers and, and ASCII blobs and all these things. that It looked just like basically random, you know, machine language code. And so, you know, I used to have all the kids from the neighborhood come over and play on the computer. I mean, I mean, basically, this is, you know, the early days, you know, right around when people are starting to get Ataris, uh, but but nobody had computers at this time. I mean, you know, nobody we knew had computers at this time. So, you know, being able to come over and play on a on a computer was kind of a novel thing. I was never particularly popular uh, in, you know, my neighborhood, among the neighborhood kids or whatever, but every time we got new toys, like a new computer or video game system, there was, you know, always a rush of kids that would come over and check it out. So, um... I would have these groups of three or four kids and there, you know, there were a couple of kids that I just couldn't stand, but you know, they hung out with kids that I did like. And so inevitably there were these kids uh, that I, you know, didn't like that would end up in my house wanting to see the computer. And so, so all these kids would come over, we'd be playing games and we'd do this for a couple hours. And then inevitably the computer would overheat and the whole screen would fill with garbage. And so I started telling the kids that it was a, it was machine language code that only I could read. I'm like, seven six or seven years old and so i start telling these kids that um that the computer is talking to me and telling me things in a secret code 
And, you know, I would tell them that the computer was telling me he didn't like, you know, one of the kids in the room or that the computer wanted so-and-so to, to leave and then it would work again. And, of course, you know, the kids didn't have any idea because computers were so magical and mystical at this time that, you know, they didn't know the computer was talking to me or not. And, and so I had a good gig going and I could get one of the kids I didn't like to leave. So it all kind of worked out. And then, of course, uh, you know, one day my dad comes into the room and one of the kids asks my dad if I can really read that stuff. And my dad says, no, that's just the computer when it overheats, you know. So all of a sudden I'm busted. And um, then I'm I'm pretty sure shortly afterwards one of the kids I made leave kicked my ass. So um, so it didn't work out in the long run. But anyway, I always kind of enjoyed that story where, you know, it's just these, um, you know, the whole screen is just filled with garbage. And then I would, you know, pretend like I'm reading really slow. He wants you to leave the room, that sort of thing. So, so anyway, I always enjoy that. But that was uh, my first computer was the TRS-80 Model 3. A couple of years later in 1982, uh, we could the price of disk drives had come down, and you could buy dual drives for the system for around $1,000, which was also the price that Apple II clone computers were being sold for. So... Instead of upgrading the TRS-80 Model 3 uh, and adding floppy drives to it, we replaced it and bought uh, Franklin Ace 1000, which is an Apple II clone. And again, I have lots and lots of Apple II stories, uh, but I'm going to save them for a later podcast because the TRS-80 Model 3 was my first computer. For the third portion of my first podcast, we're going to talk about the first video game I ever owned. And now we're jumping way into the future, all the way up to about the fall of 1994. So at this point, I'd been out of high school three years, uh, and I've already gone to junior college for two, and then gone to another college, which I've dropped out of after one. So by 1994, I am uh, living with Susan in a mobile home, Uh, Susan, who I would later marry, and her mother had bought this mobile home for her while she was attending college. So uh, Susan's living there, going to college. I moved in, and we were going to college, and then eventually we quit going to college, but we just stayed in the mobile home. And uh, at this time, in 1994, I'm working for Best Buy as a computer technician uh, long before there was a geek squad and probably before some of the Geek Squad people were born. But, you know, by 1994, we have seen the rise and the huge popularity of arcades. And this is, um, you know, one of the topics that my new book, Invading Spaces, goes into in great detail. But, um, you know, we start off in the early 80s, and we have these uh, what I call co-located arcades. You know, you have an arcade at the bowling alley. You have an arcade at the skating rink. Uh, you have arcade games at grocery stores and laundromats and things like that. And then, of course, you have, uh, as as arcade games become more popular, you have the rise of huge standalone arcades. And then, you know, eventually these things uh, begin to go away, kind of on a, a big arc the same way that they began. You start to see closing down of these huge standalone arcades and then you see these co-located arcades scale back but um uh you know so so by 1994 there are there are still lots of arcades open arcades open in uh, the malls and and um but they've been around long enough for people to start thinking of them 
as being retro as far as the early, you know, the, the Space Invaders type games. I mean, our, you know, 1994 games are still being released. There are still all kinds of new games like Mortal Kombat and stuff. But, you know, there's games of arcade games have been out long enough where there is a distinction between old games and new games. And I was, you know, I was a fan of both. I loved old games and I loved new games. But, and there had always been this weird desire inside my head to own a video game. And that comes from knowing a couple of people when I was growing up, uh, knowing someone who had an arcade game. And we actually had a, a game in our house for several years, a, um, a Tetris clone called uh, Bloxed or Bloxseed, depending on how you say it. And, um, so once I was out and living on my own, I just had this desire to own an arcade game. And so I started watching the newspaper. I didn't really know where to look at that time. This was before I'd found out about arcade auctions or, uh, and you know, there weren't, um, online, you know, there was no, uh, eBay or, you know, big forums. There was the news groups, but, but I wasn't really doing that at that time. There were BBSs. And so, you know, if you looked at BBSs, if you found somebody selling something great, but that, that was pretty rare. So the only thing I really knew to do was to watch newspapers. And so I finally found a arcade game being sold in the, uh, in the newspaper and it was elevator action, which was one of my favorite old games. So I thought, you know, this is, this is the one I want to own. It was $200 and I called a buddy of mine, uh, Jeff to ask him if he thought it was a good idea. And not only did he think it was a good idea, he said he'd pay half for the game and we could keep it at my house. So, you know, I, I thought, wow, this deal just got better. So, you know, I decide this is the game I'm going to own. So I call the guy up and yes, he has the game. And at the time I had a small Nissan pickup and I didn't really know anything about, you know, owning games or moving games or anything like that. So I hop in the pickup and this guy lives about an hour away and I drive to his house and I find it. And, um, and this guy has probably the first home arcade I've ever seen. The guy has a, uh, like a two car garage that has been converted to a home den and he has maybe a dozen games in there. And I was overwhelmed at this concept. I thought it was the coolest thing. I mean, I had no concept of a home arcade or a home game room at that point. I mean, all I could imagine is owning one or two games. And, and you know, to me, that was that was the ultimate. And so so this guy probably planted the seed in my head of someday owning a, a huge game room full of arcade games. But uh, so anyway, I go in and I get the game. And uh, the guy asked me if I brought a dolly. And then I'm thinking, no, I didn't bring a dolly, but man, that seems like a really good idea because this thing is huge. And so the guy says, don't worry, I have a dolly, you know, and he gets a dolly. And then he starts asking me all these questions like, you know, uh, did you bring rope or did you bring tarps? And, and, you know, I'm thinking, no, I brought a truck. Really? That's the only thing I brought. So I was really unequipped for this adventure. And to me, in my mind, it made sense to lay the game down. I didn't know, you know, now knowing what I know now, I probably, uh, I, I still probably would have laid the game down, but I would have opened it up to look inside, you know, to see, um, make sure everything was fastened down or whatever. But, but, you know, luck was with me that day and we laid the game down and there was no problem. We threw the truck in the back of my Nissan. I drove all the way back. There were clouds overhead. I was just, I can remember just hoping I could get home before it started raining. And the great thing about living in a mobile home is if you have to deliver something heavy, you know, I had these, these steps that went up to my front door that weren't attached to anything. So, uh, and I specifically bought this game on a night where I knew that Susan wasn't going to be home. So I, I back up to the, you know, I move these steps, I back the truck all the way up to the front door 
and I had the, the game laying down and then I just basically got underneath it and stood it up. And when it was standing up, it was in, you know, in my house and I didn't have a dolly, but I had a skateboard. So I tilted the game up and I put this old skateboard underneath it and wheeled it across the living room, uh, into the kitchen. And Susan had this little wooden stand, like a small wooden table where she would display things on. And so I took the table and I stuck it in a closet and I stuck this arcade game in the corner of the dining room. And then I, I thought, I don't, I don't know why I thought this because if you, if you, you know, arcade games don't seem that big in arcades. It's kind of like furniture. If you've ever gone shopping for furniture and you look at the, the display furniture and you go, I, you know, it doesn't, you know, it looks okay. And then when you get home, you go, Oh my God, look how huge this looks in our house. Arcade games are a lot like that. I mean, you know, you go to the arcade and they don't really seem that big, but when you get, you know, you get it into your house and all of a sudden they just look enormous. And so that's kind of what I ran into. I mean, the arcade game, the elevator action didn't look that big until it was sitting in the corner of my dining room. And all of a sudden, and I don't know why I thought this, but when I, when I bought it, I thought maybe she wouldn't notice. Like, um, you know, there's this gigantic orange box with a monitor on it that's making noises and like she wouldn't notice this you know so um so i got a plant i went and got a plant that we had somewhere and i put it on top and i was like well now she, you know for sure she won't notice uh, but it turns out she did notice and um she was actually pretty cool with the whole thing her only request was that i didn't buy any more games until we bought a new house and and actually had space to put them so you know we made that deal and later on, I did get a house, and I bought a bunch of games. And that's probably actually going to be part of podcast number two, but um, I haven't really decided yet. But anyway, uh, so those are our three firsts of mine, and I think that's going to get us started off for this first podcast. The first uh, video game console, my first computer, and the first arcade game I ever bought. Uh, I'm trying to keep these at around 30 minutes, so I'm going to go ahead and wrap up this first podcast uh, I'm going to be releasing these on the 1st and 15th of every month. So if you want to check back, you can come to robohara.com or you could go directly to my tech blog, which is tech.robohara.com, which is also the uh, host of this podcast. So you could go there and this should also be, there's an RSS feed and it should be showing up on iTunes as well. So if you want to get it that way, you could get it there. So that's um, going to be it for the first podcast. If if you have any questions or have any requests, you can email me. My email address is robohara, that's R-O-B-O-H-A-R-A, at robohara.com. See how simple that is? That's why I picked it. It's very easy for me to remember. So drop me an email. If you have any questions or comments about the first show, I'd love to hear it. And if you have any requests for future shows, I'd love to hear that as well. So thanks for listening to the first one, and be sure to check back on the 15th when episode 2 will be posted. So thanks a lot, and we'll catch you next time.